Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you also may be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we always do, to join us here this morning wherever we are gathered in your name, and we trust that you are with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. When I was in seminary, I once went to see a presentation on church planting uh, that was led by a representative from an organization called the Church Army. And if the guy making that presentation was any indication, this organization is appropriately named. He was intense, short hair, big muscles, the whole shebang. He told several stories about church planting, including how he, as a church planter, felt that after he got a church up off the ground and running, he had to move on and start something new somewhere else. I can still see his military haircut and hear his caustic Australian-accented voice. I'm not a pastor, he said. I'm a church planter. Don't be offended if anyone here is Australian or knows anyone who is Australian. I came out of that presentation, though, knowing one thing for sure, that I was not a church planter. Present company accepted, of course. But that man's proclamation, his defiant proclamation, I'm not a pastor, has stuck with me all these years. And I was reminded of that man this week as I read the words of St. Peter that we get in our reading from his first epistle. Peter, it seems, would not have made a good pastor either. Perhaps he would fit right in with the church army. I could just imagine him sitting in his office, feet probably up on a chair, when a distraught parishioner comes in. Peter, my husband is leaving me. My kid won't return my phone calls. My mother is in the hospital. I got laid off. In my imagination, Peter doesn't even take his feet off the chair. Beloved, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place. Nothing strange is happening to you. Rejoice! You are sharing Christ's sufferings. Now, at first blush, this seems to be the worst kind of response to someone in pain. Oh, you're suffering? Relax. It's no surprise. Actually, you should be happy. You are sharing in Christ's sufferings. But as insensitive as it sounds, don't let yourself think that Peter isn't following the example of Jesus Christ here. There's a story that Luke tells in uh, chapter 13 of his gospel in which Jesus is approached by some people and told of a horrifying recent event. A group of Galileans who were trying to make their sacrifices in the temple were executed right there at the altar. Their blood, Jesus is told, is mingled with the blood of the animals that they are sacrificing. And what does Jesus say? Does he say, that's so awful. I'm going to fix this right away. No. Jesus' response to this tragedy is a question. 
He asks the people who have come to him, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish as they did. And just in case his listeners didn't get his point, Jesus invokes another current event. Or those 18 who were killed, he says, when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. These are Jesus' pastoral responses to disaster. First, to an act of evil perpetrated by men. Second, to an act of God. The response is the same. Unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. You can hear this sentiment in St. Peter's words to us this morning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, after all this, we could be forgiven for wanting to just dismiss Peter and Jesus as insensitive jerks. They're so cold. Right? The, the section above Luke 13 in the English Standard Version literally just says, repent or perish. Jesus and Peter apparently are like that guy that you see outside the football game with the big sign and the crazy eyes and the megaphone. We all take a wide angle around that guy, don't we? So what are we going to do with Peter and Jesus here? How can we understand what they have to say to us? Repent or perish. Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that you're going through. Rejoice, in fact. You are sharing in Christ's sufferings. I think that Peter and Jesus here are not trying to teach us how to deal pastorally with the sufferings in our community. This is not how I would recommend going around and talking to your friends when they are suffering. What Peter and Jesus are trying to do, though, is to teach us something about suffering. They're trying to teach us a truth that, though difficult to process, is ultimately very good news for us. See, we humans, ever since our distrust of the Lord bloomed in Eden, when we started hearing and asking questions like, did God really say that? Don't you think he's just afraid you'll become like him? Does God really have your best interest at heart? As soon as we started hearing and asking questions like that, ever since then, we've thought that when we suffered, it meant that God was far away from us. Think about Job's friends. When Job suffers, they come to him again and again, imploring him to confess whatever sin he must have committed to allow God to allow him to suffer like that. We suffer, our human nature allows us to assume, because we're being judged. The classic deep thought by Jack Handy gets at this. If a kid asks where the rain comes from, I think a cute thing to tell him is, God is crying. And if he asks why God is crying, another cute thing to tell him is, probably because of something you did. Now the joke lands... We wince 
because it feels so familiar, because we are predisposed to feel exactly that. Why is God crying? Probably because of something you did. We think of the times when we hurt, the times when we are confused, the times when we weep, and we feel that those are the times that God is far away from us. We worry about the bad things that happen in the world and in our families, and we don't know how to reconcile them with a loving and omnipotent God. If he were so loving and powerful, how could he let the world remain like this? Dictators in the Middle East and Asia, famine and genocide in Africa, novel coronaviruses that have every single one of you in a mask this morning. What exactly is God doing? We feel he must either be disengaged from the world or actively punishing it. But this is where Jesus and Peter have good news. God is not disengaged. They say, your suffering is not his punishment. Jesus says that sufferers, whether they suffer at the hands of others or at the hands of what seems like fate, are not being punished by God. He stresses, in fact, that they are no worse sinners than anyone else. And Peter says the same thing. As terrible as the things that are happening to you feel, he says, They are common to human experience. I have a friend who says that the sum of human suffering is evenly distributed. We all suffer. In fact, it is the most obvious thing that unites us. Our need. Despite our being hardwired to believe that in our suffering, the Lord is either far from us or punishing us. Christianity teaches something quite Different. In his prayer for his disciples before he's arrested, what's called his high priestly prayer, the prayer that we read from in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus says to his Father in heaven, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And what is Jesus' work? What is it that he's claiming to have finished? Well, if this prayer just before his arrest marks the end of his public ministry, let's go back and look to its beginning. When Jesus first comes on the scene publicly, he's teaching in a synagogue. This is Luke chapter 4, and he's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolls it and begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Luke records an incredible scene, one that gives me goosebumps every time I read it. Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' self-proclaimed work is to rescue 
and heal the poor, prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. This is the same Jesus who later would say that he came for the sick, that the healthy have no need of him. God is not far from us when we suffer. He is right there in our sufferings. That's why he came. This is what the reformers referred to as the theology of the cross. The crucifixion, something that seems on the surface to be the bad thing, the worst of things, was in fact the best thing that could have happened for us. God uses an outwardly horrific event to accomplish the salvation of his people. Our God is in the terrible things. Our God is in the hard things, in the suffering, in the pain. Another friend says that God's office is at the end of your rope. This is where he does his work. And this, counterintuitively, is why we can say, as Peter suggests, that we can rejoice in suffering. Why we can shout for joy when the glory of the Lord is revealed, even if it's revealed in the midst of struggle and strife. It means that God is at work. And God's work is to save. Those same reformers that talked about the theology of the cross also said that God works subcontrario. That's a little Latin for you. That is under the opposite, subcontrario, under the opposite of where you expect him to be. We think that the Lord will work in success and in health and in ease. But in truth, God works in failure, in suffering, even in death. Just like Good Friday. When Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be arrested, tried, convicted, and executed, Peter says, never, not on my watch. And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan. Peter's not thinking subcontrario. Jesus is. Jesus knows how God works in pain, in suffering, in death. God works under the opposite of where we think he will be. He works in the crucifixion to save us. He works in Peter's abandonment and denial to make him the head of the church. And he works in our struggles, in our brokenness, and in our hurt to give us joy. Because joy comes from hope, born out of suffering. Jesus tells his followers in John chapter 16 that in this life, in this world, they will have struggles. But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. He doesn't say that things will get better, though we pray desperately for that to happen and indeed expect and anticipate miracles. Jesus, though, makes a simple claim. Simple, but incredibly profound. He has overcome the world. This is related to his saying that we talked about earlier, where Jesus tells God that he has glorified him by finishing the work that he was given to do. We suffer, and yet in him we are 
redeemed. In our reading from 1 Peter, the same one in which we're told to rejoice because we're sharing in Christ's sufferings, there is a disturbing description of Satan. He's described as prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now imagine the feeling of his prey, the hunted. That's the feeling of a sufferer. In Jesus' job description, that's the feeling of someone who's poor, who's a prisoner, who's blind, who's oppressed. That's us. That's the way we feel. Like there's an enemy out there, a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone, looking for us to devour us. Many of us feel like we're being devoured right now. That's why we've come here this morning. The world is overwhelming us. But Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. I glorified you, Father, on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. It's over. When Jesus finished that reading from Isaiah that day in the synagogue, he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. On his first day in public ministry, today it's been fulfilled in your hearing. And then on his last day, he said, it is finished. This time from the cross, sealing his completed work on our behalf, rescuing us from that hungry lion forever. We do not hope that Jesus will win the fight against that lion looking for someone to devour. No, we have hope because that victory is already won. That lion will go hungry. We are already saved. In this world, we suffer, but we never Suffer alone. Jesus said, I have come for the sick. I have come for the sufferer. The healthy have no need of me. Jesus came for you. You never suffer alone. And your suffering, stinging though it is, not only has an end, but an end that has already been assured, a victory that has already been won, a lion already slain and defeated. In Christ, you are redeemed. In Christ, you are made new. In Christ, you are saved. Amen.